We're in Romans chapter 12. I've said that now for a few weeks. First night, we covered one and a half verses, and I announced that we would finish verse 2 and go down to verse 8, and somebody said, yeah, right. And we finished all the way to verse 8, and we'd like to go from verse 9 to about verse 16 tonight. Don't think we'll make it all the way through the end of the chapter, and it's divided up into two sections nonetheless. For the sake of knowing where we've come from and where we are, let's begin back at verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless, and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And for the sake of context, let's finish out these verses. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Paul is a practical theologian. He takes 11 chapters and covers the gamut of the wrath of God, the grace of God, the plan of God for Jew and Gentile, and now he gets very practical. From chapters 12 all the way to the end of the book, Paul is driving home what it all means. And one of the things I have loved whenever I read the writings of Paul is that he combines doctrine and duty. It's not just all doctrinal stuff, but he pauses after a while and he says, all right, 
Let all the stuff that we have learned distill into your hearts, be changed by it, and then live it. So that creed and conduct are always in concert together. That's been Paul's method in every book that he writes. Verse 1 and 2 is knowing the will of God. That's the section, by the way, verse uh, chapter 12 to the end of the book. The theme of these chapters is knowing the will of God. And every Christian I've ever met who's worth his or her salt wants to know God's will. And verses 1 and 2 are very general. You can know the will of God generally by presenting your body to God, by having your mind transformed by God, and in the midst of that, you will apprehend the will of God. And we discussed that for, oh, a week, a week and a half. Then, from the general, he moves to the specific, and he will take the rest of the book and be specific as to how to know God's will. First of all, he says, how can you know God's will in regard to your spiritual gifts and your place in the body of Christ? Learn what your gifts are. Learn where you fit. Learn what God's will is, depending on how God gifted you. Now he speaks about, in the verses that we're looking at tonight, verses 9 through 16, God's will in relationship to spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit, principally love. This, then, is the motivation for what he just spoke about last time. Here's the gifts, he says. Use them. But the motivation for the use is to be the motivation of love. So you might take these verses that we're going to look at tonight and give it a title. How to love the family of God is what I would title it. How to love the family of God. Or you might even call it Paul's recipe for love. Paul's recipe for love. Now you know there's no subject that is more popular, I think, than love. It's the subject of a good portion of songs that are written. It's the theme of many television shows or movies that are written. This idea of a couple coming together, a dating relationship or a a love relationship. And though it is the subject of movies, the subject of books, the subject of songs, most of what the world talks about as love is hardly a true definition of love. What the world usually celebrates is the emotional aspect or the physical aspect, which would be better described as lust, but they call it love. And so people are confused as to what true love is. Just listen to us as Americans speak. We say things like, I love my family. And we may not know it, but a sentence or two later, I love roast chicken. Now, we who are English speakers know that we do so in different capacities, but we jump or jumble it all together with one word, the word love. And so people can be confused. I've even heard, as you have, people talking about making love. A couple made love. And oftentimes they didn't make love. They made lust. And they made lust happen. But it wasn't true love. Now, in light of that, Paul speaks about love in the body of Christ, and then he'll speak about next time love outside the body of Christ. This is how we love the church. This is then, after that, how we love the world, our enemies, those who don't love us, those who persecute us. 
And so tonight we want to look at the love for the church. Now, uh, what I'm about to say, many of you who are Bible students for some time, this is old hat to you. You could get right up here and teach everything I'm about to teach in the next paragraph or two because you've been through it. But others haven't, and even if you have, there are some things that bear repetition because we forget. And Peter said, as long as I'm in this body of flesh, I'm going to stir you up to remembering these things as long as God gives me the capacity. Also, this foundational stuff I'm going to get into about love is the foundation for a lot of the study tonight. There's some words I'm going to give you definitions to in a minute. Greek words. And you might think, I don't want to learn Greek. You already know a lot of the Greek words I'm going to say because they're part of the English language. But it's time to just review the words for love used in the Greek language. Now, as I said, we have one general banner word for love. In Greek, there are four. The first word that was very common in Greek language is the word eros. Eros. It is not a word found in the Bible. It is a word very often found in Greek literature. The word eros comes from a Greek god's name, who's called the god of love. But the basic meaning of the word means to grab or to grasp. And that is the essence of erotic love, to grasp something or someone to gratify my own desire. That's what the word came to mean. By the way, eros is the root word of some of our English language words like erotic or erogenous, etc., Physical love, reaching for something to gratify oneself. Another word is the Greek word storgos or storge, depending on its variant form. And this is a family love. This is the devotion that family members would have one for another. Husband to wife, parents to children, children to parents. This devotional, whimsical, warm love that is found within the family. Storgos. There's an ancient tale of a city that was being captured by a general with his armies. The general demanded absolute surrender. One young man and his brother gave over to the general's wishes, surrendered to him, and the army allowed those two men to go back to their home, grab the most important possessions they had on earth, and leave the city before it was burned. And so later, those two men were seen at the gates. One had in his arms his mother, the other had in his arms his father. And that was sort of the description of storgos, family love, this love for one's own. A third type of love is the word philia or phileo. You've heard of that. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And that's what it means, brotherly love. Again, it's a fondness, a warmth, different from storgos, but this fond warmth of human to human that friends would have or brothers would have. We get the word philosophy, means the love of wisdom, the fondness of wisdom, literally. Philanthropy, the love for humankind. So it is the fond love of mankind, philea or phileo. The thing about this love, it's a, it's a great sounding kind of love, but it implies in its usage selectivity on both sides. That is, 
I don't phileo everybody. I have a warm friendship affections for certain ones that have the same for me. That's usually how it's used. It is selective. There's a fourth word, and this is common in the New Testament, and it's common here in our text. You know what that word is? It's agape. Most every Christian in a short period of time learns that word, agape love. And agape is an interesting word in that it was rarely used in secular Greek literature, but it's used 250 times in the New Testament. In fact, some scholars believe that agape love was sort of invented by the New Testament authors. They wanted to find a description of God's love that was so different from self-centered love that the Greeks had. They wanted something so absolutely detached from that that they selected the word agape. Agape love. Sacrificial love. The opposite of eros, to grasp, to satisfy myself. It's a kind of love that considers others unconditionally and sacrificially. It is the word that describes God's love for humanity all throughout the New Testament. That sacrificial, unconditional love. A couple things about this kind of love that we find in the scripture. Agape love is not primarily a feeling that you cannot control. It is not primarily a feeling you can't control. It is rather a choice that you can control. So if somebody says, I just couldn't help it. I had such love that just came over me for that person and I couldn't control it. That is not agape love. The same as if somebody said, well, I used to love that person, but I've fallen out of love. I don't love that person anymore. I just can't help it. That's not agape love. Agape love is a choice that you can control. It was this concept that William Shakespeare had in mind when he wrote that famous line, love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, nor bends with the remover to remove no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks at the face of adversity and remains unchanged. That's how the New Testament would describe God's love. Now, it would help to make a distinction. The Bible never sees loving this way as we would see liking. Loving and liking are two different issues. Liking someone is an emotional sensation. That changes depending on the circumstances. Love is different. It is an ever-fixed mark. It's a decision to show something towards someone sacrificially and unconditionally. You can't control a lot of the circumstances that go on. Thus, we don't like everyone. I'm not sure we're supposed to like everyone. In fact, to be honest with you, it's impossible to like everyone, isn't it? I don't like everyone. Just in case you're wondering, oh, you, you're supposed to love, yeah, I do, I'm supposed to love everyone, but I don't like everyone. You know what, there's a lot of things about me God doesn't like, but God loves me unconditionally, sacrificially. So there is a difference between liking and loving. And as we mentioned, I just want to underscore it, agape love is the kind of love that God traffics in. 250 times it's used in the New Testament. It is the word that describes God's love usually, almost invariably, as seen at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. For God so loved 
Agape is the word, the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians chapter 2, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but it's not me who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live uh, in the flesh, I live, and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You want to just come up here? Go ahead, just take over. Thank you very much. He loved me and gave himself for me. And then Romans chapter 5, that familiar passage that God demonstrates his own love toward us, agape, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the love of God, the love that God traffics in, is best seen and most always seen at the sacrifice of the cross. Okay, mark this. So far in the book of Romans, every time Paul uses the word love, he refers to God. That's his makeup. That's his character. God loves like that. Now what Paul does is apply that singular word, different from storgos, different from eros, different from philea, and he applies it to Christians, that we are to have that kind of love, agape, toward one another. And so in the relationship, knowing the will of God, in relationship to the body of Christ, the love word that he uses is the word agape, whereas up to this point, he used it to refer only to God. We begin in verse 9, and I'm going to give you, if I can make it through tonight, seven descriptions of this kind of love. This is the recipe of love, Paul's description of love. First of all, it is pure love, pure love. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Let it be genuine, in other words. Let it be not fake. Let it be real. Let it be from the heart. Don't wear a mask. That's the idea of hypocrisy. On hypocritas is the word that is used. Uh, Don't be a hypocrite. A hypocrite was an actor on the Greek stage. And because in many of the ancient plays they didn't have settings like we have in modern movies and modern plays, they would carry masks in their hand. And the play actor, when he wanted to show a sad face, had a frowning mask. He wouldn't have to do anything. It wasn't his real face. He just put it over his face and there was a sad look. And then he would recite his lines. When he wanted to show happiness, he had a face that smiled. That was the word hypocrite an actor on the stage. Now Paul says, let your love be without hypocrisy. In other words, the church must never become the stage where love is simply theater. Rather, love is to be in real life shown. Let love be without hypocrisy. John Murray once said, if love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, What a contradiction to bring these two together. So, the will of God for me is to have pure love, to love without a mask, to love sincerely, to be honest with people. An example of somebody who wore a mask? Judas. He was a hypocrite. He sounded like he loved people, but he didn't. Remember the time when they were at Bethany, the disciples and Jesus, and that woman broke that very costly vial of ointment and spread it all over Jesus and the beautiful aroma filled the air and Judas protested 
He said, you know, this is expensive ointment. It should have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. Stop. You listen to that statement and you think, now that guy loves the poor. He's mad at, the, at Jesus' church budget, you know, and just, this is a waste. That could have been used for the poor. 300 denarii, that's expensive. And she just busted it and poured it all over this guy. That's ridiculous. Should go to the poor. And probably people thought, yeah. But John gives the explanation. This he said not because he cared for the poor, but because he kept the money box and he took money out. So there was less for Judas to steal. He was a thief. That is love with a mask, folks. That's hypocritical love. Another example later on, Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, goes out of the upper room, makes the deal, goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, walks up to Jesus and does what? Kisses him, a sign of affection that friends would have. And that's why Jesus said, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? That's love with a mask. That's hypocritical love. So let love be without hypocrisy. If you have an NIV, it says something different. Love must be sincere. And, and that is a good translation. Love should be sincere. I've told you before what the meaning of the word sincere is. If you forget, let me remind you. The word sincere in English comes from two Latin words, sin, sere, literally, without wax. Let your love be without wax would be a literal translation of the NIV. You say, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> I mean, how could I love with wax? Well, there was an ancient practice of sculpting, and the sculptor would take marble, and he would work a work of art, and sometimes the work that he would make would crack. He might have spent months making a bust and a face of an important person for an inauguration, and, and just as he was getting finished putting the last touches on, the chisel got too close and there was a fissure in the rock and the nose just popped off. So six months down the drain, what did he do? Well, if he had integrity, he'd throw it away and start again. If he didn't have integrity, he would take marble dust mixed with wax, which looks just like marble, fashion a fake nose, put a little more of the dust on top of it so it looks like marble, harden it a little bit, and leave it, sell it. So... Statues and porcelain dishes, if they were inspected, were called either with wax or without wax. They were sold as such. You get a cheaper price on the stuff with wax. But if it was sincere, without wax, it was pure, undefiled. And you can see the problem if you had a statue with wax. They are inaugurating a new prince or a new king or a new mayor and they have the statue out there on a nice summer day in Rome with a nice white veil over it and then they unveil the statue and the crowd applauds. And the guy gets up to give his speech and his statue's behind him, this huge, bigger-than-life bust figure of him and as he's talking and the sun hits the statue, the nose begins to melt down the face. And everybody's laughing and the guy can't figure out what it is. He turns around and says, Oh! This was not a sincere statue. So let your love be sincere, without wax, without hypocrisy. Notice what it says in the description of this 
abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now, for love to be pure love, it has to be more like God's love than anything else. And to do that, you have to hate what God hates, which is evil, and love what God loves, which is good. But don't you find it interesting that in the commandment to love, there's a commandment to hate? Let your love be without hypocrisy. Hate or abhor, that's a stronger word than hate, abhor what is evil. And that might sound strange that a Christian should hate, but you know what? Hate is actually an attribute of God. He said, no, wait a minute. The Bible says God is love. You're right. The Bible says God is love. That's the general characteristic. But one of the attributes of God is hate. God hates hypocrisy. God hates sin. God hates false religion. In the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter 1, God hates religion and ritual without a relationship. When they're giving sacrifices and oblations, God says, don't bring those offerings which my soul hates hates. It is an attribute of God. And to, for love to be more like God's love, there are certain things that love or that a person must hate, abhor what is evil. I believe that one of the greatest weaknesses of the church has been a tolerance for sin, a tolerance of evil. Oh, just forget it. Don't worry about it. Don't get, oh, just let it go. And Jesus would rebuke a church or an individual that is soft and tolerant of sin. He writes to the church in the New Testament, Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, and he says, I have this against you. This is Jesus now speaking. Red letter, speaking to the church, not to unbelievers, to the church. I have something against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food that is sacrificed to idols. There was somebody in the church who was teaching the opposite of New Testament doctrine. They were not teaching holiness. They were very soft on sin, and the church tolerated it. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, in effect, in effect, you don't love the church. If you love the church, you wouldn't tolerate that going on. So he castigates or rebukes them. In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle rebuked the Corinth church because they were tolerant of immorality. He rebuked the Galatians because they were tolerant of legalism. Um, several decades ago, there was a, an incident in, in a hospital, Birmingham County Hospital, where the maternity ward had a host of newborns die, several in a row. So they investigated as to why so many of these babies were dying. They discovered that in mixing the formula for feeding, rather than using sugar water, they used saline solution. Now they look exactly the same. The, the, uneducated, unsuspecting, would look at the solution and say, it's the same, but it's not the same. The ingredients are different. And so a lawsuit was leveled against the hospital and the individuals who mixed the formula. Though they looked the same, they were very different, and the results were different. It killed the children. 
When God's people tolerate sin, they mix the formula of salvation any which way you want to, the result is death. And so Jesus said, I have this against you. You tolerate that within the church. So ask yourself, how do you look at evil? How do you respond to evil? When you see it in a movie, do you love what God hates? Do you hate what God loves? Or do you abhor evil because it hurts the heart of God and love what is good because it blesses his heart? That is part of love. It is to be pure. Christians should have a healthy view of sin. Second, it's to be compassionate love, verse 10. Not only pure, but compassionate. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Now, two words are used in this verse. Remember I said that you're going to learn a few words and we're going to use them later on? This is where we use them. Two words that Paul uses in this verse that would normally speak of a family love and affection. First of all, he says, be kindly affectionate. Philostorgos. Phileo, you know what that is, brotherly love. Storgos, family love. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Philadelphia. It's not just a city, it's the meaning brotherly love. So, it would be better translated, perhaps, have family affection with brotherly love. Why? Because the church is a family. In fact, for many of you, Christian brothers and sisters are more your family than your blood family, your original family. You found a nesting place. You found a dwelling place. You found acceptance. Maybe when you received Christ, you were rejected by your family. Many are. And so be kindly affectionate. Philostorgos with Philadelphia. Have a family affection with brotherly love. One of the things that impresses me the most about you as a church is your brotherly love, is your kind affection. Nobody has to tell you, hey, that brother has a need, go fix it. You're just on the lookout. I know that because I get reports all the time about it, whether it's somebody who comes in the church and notices love between one another, and they've shared that with me in the context of a service, or stuff that goes on throughout the week. I got a phone call not too long ago from a Mr. Muchow, I think that's how he pronounced his name. He said that he was in the 8,000 block of Central, driving his car. He parked his car, went inside the store, left his wife in the car, and he said, four Calvary fellas, that's how he described them, four Calvary fellas walked by and told his wife in the car that they heard air coming out of one of the tires. It's leaking and we'd like to fix it. So they jacked the car up. He was still in the store. Jacked it up, changed the tire, put the one that was leaking in the trunk, got it all set, and just at that time he was walking out. What he said is he had just been released from the hospital. If they hadn't have come by, he couldn't have done it himself. He said, you know, the Lord sent those Calvary fellas <laughs> to help me get my car going. Now, nobody had to tell them, hey, you know what the Bible says, man. They just saw a need. And with kind affection and brotherly love, they helped. So, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love 
in honor giving preference to one another, compassionate love. It's a cop-out to look at a church this size, and it is sizable, but there are bigger, believe me, and to say, oh, you know, there's just no personal touch, and the church is getting so big, and it's so impersonal. If that's the case, that's your choice. It really is your choice. You, you can have the choice. The Bible says he who has friends must himself be friendly. You can be friendly on any level. You can have a church of 10 people seem impersonal if you don't want to get involved. But there's so much opportunity for involvement and so much opportunity for showing brotherly love. And, and let me say that the, the bigger the church gets, the more needs arise, and the more God would call people to manifest his will through brotherly love, compassionate love. Verse 11 and 12 is exemplary love. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Now, I've taken these two verses and called it exemplary love because it seems to just take a whole bunch of activity and be saying that in doing these things, you become an example to those in the body of Christ by that example of love. And in verse 11... I would say that's an example of steadfast service, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Verse 12 is an example of steadfast trust, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. First of all, we have an opportunity to be an example to the body of Christ of what it is to serve the Lord a love for serving the Lord. And as Paul puts it, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The New Living Translation is a classic. It says, never be lazy in your work, but serve the Lord enthusiastically. Have you ever seen your job as a way to serve God? Say, so, oh, no, listen, you don't know my job. God isn't interested in my job. I have a really crummy job. I just do this thing. Nobody sees it. God sees it. And you could say, Lord, I'm doing this as unto you. I'm going to fold this box as unto the Lord. I'm going to stack that stack as unto the Lord. I'm going to serve you in it. And Lord, while I do, if my coworkers would open up their hearts and I could share in this mundane level of job, what real hope and real life is all about, open the door. Your job can become an exciting venture as God would use you in that place. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. Are you lagging in diligence? Are you lagging in fervency? You know, there seems to be a, a, a sort of a, a seasonal thing that happens to many believers. They come to Christ, they get all excited, they want to serve the Lord, they can't stop talking about Jesus, they read the Bible all the time, they grab friends to pray with because it's just so cool, they've never done this before. Then time lapses on, it gets old, been there, done that, prayed that, didn't get answered, another Bible study, heard that before. And soon the spark is gone. Even though God speaks from heaven his word, doesn't do anything. 
It once did. What happened? Lagging in diligence? Not fervent in spirit? I think the disciples were in that place after the death of Christ, so discouraged, so despondent, until they were walking one day on a road to Emmaus, and Jesus walked by them and walked with them incognito. And he started sharing scripture with them about the Messiah. And then they discovered it was Jesus. And remember what they said? Did not our hearts burn within us as he spoke to us along the way and opened up the scriptures? Do you have a good case of heartburn? Every Christian should have spiritual heartburn where they listen to something as God speaks in his word. And it's like, yes, he's speaking that to me. My heart's burning within me. Fervent in spirit. We live in a time when knowledge has never been greater. We have 2,000 years of accumulated Christian research and knowledge. We have Christian radio and Christian television and books by so many publishers and varieties of commentaries and translations and all of that great equipment. Don't get me wrong. It's a great asset. But where's the passion? Where's the fire that comes with that? Could it be said of some of us, many are called, but most are frozen? <laughs> we're called of God, we're there, but where's the passion, the heart, the diligence, fervency of spirit? It means red hot, burning. In fact, the word fervent in spirit means enthusiasm to the boiling point. I know, a lot of people get down on, on enthusiastic Christians. They get nervous. Anytime a Christian gets excited and gets enthusiastic, uh-oh, fanatic. <laughs> now, unbelievers do this, but some believers do this as well. They get all worried about some Christian being enthusiastic about God as if you're supposed to be apathetic. No, come on, man, stagnate a little bit, would you? It'll be good for all of us. Mellow out. Don't be a fanatic. Yet those same people can go to a Lobo game and see people jumping up and down, acting like goofballs because somebody threw a ball or made a touch and somebody gets excited about Jesus fanatic one of the great things about here is your enthusiasm for the things of God and again, I hear those reports every week by visitors. They'll come up after a service. Boy, this place is alive. People are enthusiastic. They love God. And one of the things I have seen grip the heart of unbelievers who have come isn't just the message that is preached, though God certainly uses his word as the key element, but they're primed because they've seen your enthusiasm. You enthusiastically brought them to church. You enthusiastically shared the gospel with them. They saw your enthusiasm in worship. You weren't just a spectator. You are a participant. And God used that to open up their hearts. So, fervent in spirit, enthusiasm to the boiling point. Now, I would just balance that out by saying that we need balance in this area. When it comes to enthusiasm, you don't fake it. Don't say, okay, well, I'll just jump up and down more. No. False enthusiasm is just as bad. A painted fire never warms anybody. It has to be something that God does in your heart. 
Then in verse 12, this exemplary love is shown by an example of steadfast trust, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Rejoice in hope. You know, the Bible never tells you to rejoice in your circumstances. Never. It says rejoice in the Lord, and the idea implied is that you rejoice in God often in spite of your circumstances. Now, years ago, there were books written, and I won't mention who wrote them, but the idea was you praise God for everything. As soon as something happens, even if it's really bad, you stop. You go, praise you, Lord, for that. Lord, thank you that I dropped the microwave on my foot. It's busted in two, and I'm bleeding. Oh, praise you. Listen, that's lame. I don't praise God that I dropped a microwave on my foot. I will praise God in spite of the fact that I dropped it on my foot. I will praise Him because He's God. I won't praise Him when I see an atrocity happening over in Kosovo. But I will say, God, you're sovereign. Show yourself even in that situation. And in the midst of it, in spite of the circumstances, I will rejoice in the Lord. And here it says rejoice in hope. The idea implied is the hope of His coming. Tell you what, talk about something that lifts you over your circumstances. It's knowing Jesus Christ could come back. When I first came to Christ, I got so excited as I walked into my college classes and thought, since I hadn't really prepared for the test, <laughs> maybe Jesus will come before this test is finished. Wouldn't that be exciting? And it gave me hope. <laughs> I didn't rejoice in the test, but I rejoiced in the coming of the Lord. And everybody that comes to Christ, God puts a seed within that born-again heart that begins to germinate and grow. And pretty soon, this world doesn't feel like home anymore. They start thinking about heaven. They start thinking about something beyond this earth. They start longing to be with the Lord in glory forever. And Paul even mentions that hope. He said, if in this life we have hope in Christ only, we are of all men most miserable. Our hope goes beyond this life into the eternal realms. Part of that in verse 12, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Now, I will be the first to admit, I often fail right here. I can preach this, but you need to know I struggle with this patient in tribulation. Here's the interesting twist. It's the tribulation itself that produces patience. We read that already in Romans 5. It works patience. So, huh. learn the lesson in the trial now. Learn it. God, what are you teaching me? Learn the patience, because I found that God takes us back to those untaught lessons till we learn them. And I'm not interested in repeating trials. I'm not interested in taking seventh grade math over and over and over again. It's like, okay, I'll pass the test and move on. The very thing that trials produce, which is patience, is what will get you through it. I've told you before about the young minister who his chief complaint was he didn't have much patience. And most of us complain about that. You know, our prayer is, God, give me patience right now. 
And so he went to the older minister and he says, pray for me. I am so impatient. Would you pray that God would give me patience? He said, certainly I will. Lord, send this young minister many trials, much tribulation. And the guy said, whoa, time out. I didn't ask you to pray for that. I want patience. And then he quoted to him that passage in Romans that says, tribulation worketh patience. You don't get patience by reading Tyndale's last publication, How to Get Patience, Ten Easy Steps. You get it by tribulation. And once you got it, it will help you go through the next tribulation. I'm still learning. I'm still waiting. Patient in tribulation. So, this is to be pure love. It's to be compassionate love. It's to be exemplary love. And number four, it's to be practical love. Verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Generous, practical love. People have a need, go meet the need. People are strangers, give them your hospitality. The word distributing is the word koinonia. Ever heard of that word? Acts chapter 2. It was one of the things that marked the early church. They had koinonia. It means all things in common. It means to share with people. The idea here is you share in people's suffering by sharing your resources with them. Share what God has given to you, thus you are sharing in their suffering. The Jerusalem church had all things in common. Same word, koinonia. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, that's the word koinonia, breaking bread and prayers. So, the church is to have this kind of love for one another. Practical, meeting the need kind of a love. I do believe within the church, it is the church's responsibility, not the government's responsibility. That's why we have a storehouse ministry stocked with food, and people come in weekly to get groceries if they can't afford it, because it's the church's responsibility to take care of those within the church who are struggling, not lazy ones, but those who truly can't meet their needs. Instead of saying, the government should do it. No, they shouldn't. In fact, the early church managed very well in the midst of the Roman government that could care less. Jesus made it clear in the parable of the Good Samaritan that we're to help anyone that we find in need. In Galatians, Paul writes, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then notice in that same verse the word hospitality. Generosity is to the needy. Hospitality is to the visitor, the stranger. Back in those days, in the New Testament days, hospitality was one of the great virtues of early Christians. In fact, they wanted to be known as those who were hospitable. There really were no inns back in those days, and the inns that existed were no holiday, believe me. They were unsafe. They were untidy. And so Christians would open up their home. If somebody was coming through who was a believer, they would find out in a church service, and they'd say, stay with us. We have a room. We'll take care of you. We'll feed you until you're on your way. One of the early Christian commentators named Origen from Alexandria, Egypt, said these words, We are not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after, look carefully for strangers, 
to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their heads. So, love is to be pure love, compassionate love, exemplary love, practical love. Verse 14 gets harder. It's to be independent love. Because Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Our love should be independent of the way people treat us. Instead of saying, you know, I'm not going to love that person because that person has been a creep to me. Agape love is love that is independent of the way we are treated by others. He says, bless those who persecute you. They may persecute us, but we will bless in return. So this is not reciprocal love, but supernatural, independent love of the way we have been treated, or we should say mistreated by others. Now honestly, let's be really honest. This is a tough command. Love your enemy. Oh, really? Yeah, bless the people who curse you. Bless those who persecute you. That is difficult to do. Let's get real. It's impossible to do without the love of Christ, is it not? It's impossible to do. But as Christians, we're to emulate the kind of love that God has, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good, and part of what is good is to love those who don't love us. And if one thing will show that person that we're different, it's that. Anybody can, can um, retaliate. We'll get more into that next week as the next section that closes off chapter 12 deals principally with loving those who are unlovely, loving those outside the church, those who would mistreat us. But, you know, if anything's going to win them over, it's that love. If somebody cuts you off on the freeway, if you cut them off, they would probably understand it. They wouldn't like it, but they'd understand it because they did it to you. But if you were to wave at them and smile, <laughs> God bless you. Somebody threatens you. You see, it's so foreign, we laugh at it. It's just, yeah, come on. It's the pinnacle of agape love. In verses 17 through 21, we'll get to that next week. We'll talk about more of that. I was watching not too long ago after the Columbine shootings in Colorado. The parents of one of the girls that was shot, Christian parents, get on Larry King Live and talk about their daughter who is now dead. And Larry King said, you've got to be bitter. You've got to be angry at the kids who did this. They're dead, but you've got to have just anger in your heart toward them. And she said, no, Larry, I have forgiveness for them. I have pity for them. I pity especially their parents who now have to live with what their children have done. And in a lot of ways, they're out of the loop. It's not their fault. It might be in some ways, but I feel so sorry for those parents. And I have such love in my heart for them and forgiveness. And Larry King looked absolutely pale. As if to say, you're kidding. And he turned quickly to the husband and said, now, you don't feel that way, do you? Do you feel the same way? And he says, well, Larry, let me tell you something. This kind of love, he said, would be impossible. Before I came to Christ, I couldn't have done it. But because Jesus Christ has put his love in my heart and forgiven my sins 
and the way he loves me. He's done a work and carried me through this. And I do have love and I do have forgiveness. And Larry was just dumb. He didn't know what to say. <laughs> Billy Graham was on one of the local networks and so it flashed on him. He says, well, Billy, what do you think about this? And Billy said, that shows what the love of God can do. That proves that it's different. It made such an impact. Independent of circumstance. Of course, Jesus did that on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing when he's under the weight of sin and the penalty of sin at the cross. Stephen, when he is being persecuted back in Acts chapter 7 by his persecutors, he's being stoned to death. He looks up into heaven. Now I would have said, Lord, get them for this. After I'm dead, kill them. I'd be tempted at least to say that. But Stephen said, Lord, don't lay this sin to their charge. And he closed his eyes and he fell asleep. Wow. That is independent love of these circumstances. So pure love, compassionate love, exemplary love, practical love, independent love. Six, sympathetic love. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. True love is never aloof from what people are going through. It identifies with that person as much as possible. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Now that sounds pretty easy. Oh, great, they're having a good time. I'll rejoice with them. Try it sometime. I find it's easier to weep with people who weep than to rejoice with people that rejoice. And I think mo most Christians would feel the same way. When somebody is going through a difficult time and you are not, it's a lot easier for you to get down to their level and try as much as you can to sympathize, to empathize, to love. But when somebody is blessed more than you and they're rejoicing and they drive up with a brand new pickup truck <laughs> and you're driving a 75 beat up Pino you go, man, I prayed for a car, and look, God gave me this truck. What's your response? Hallelujah, or praise the Lord. <laughs> Gee. Or you work in the same place, you get the same wage, and your coworker says, I just got a raise. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> Glory. This is tough. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Jesus did, by the way. Shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept, John chapter 11. Tears are best born with the help of a friend. Weeping with those who weep. There's a great story about a little girl who came home from school and said, Mommy, I'm sorry I'm late, but Janie's cat died, and she was in such sorrow, and I needed to help her out. And so Mom said, Well, what did you do to help her out? She said, I sat and cried with her. That helped her out, weeping with those who weep. Last, and we'll close with this, humble love. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. The opposite of love is pride. The opposite of love, you might say, is hate, but hate comes from pride, and the worst form of pride is snobbery. 
thinking you're in an elite class, you can't associate with certain kind of people because you're in a caste all of your own. I have to only associate with certain types of individuals. It's good for me. Jesus, who created heaven and earth and spoke the universe into existence, washed feet and hung out with what other people thought were rejects. So true love is humble love. Do not set your mind on high things. Associate with the humble and don't be wise in your own opinion. We're out of time. I just want to uh, go over those points with you. This is Paul's recipe for love. Love is to be pure love. It is to be compassionate love. It is to be exemplary love. It is to be practical love. It is to be independent love, independent of circumstances. It is to be sympathetic love, getting in the level with people who are suffering or rejoicing. And it is to be humble love. That's his recipe. Warning, it's dangerous to do so. It's wonderful. And if you love like this, you are such an asset to the body of Christ. But if you love like this, it's dangerous. Because when, you're love, you're, when you love, you are vulnerable. And when you are vulnerable to people, you will get hurt. You will get hurt. And that's what keeps a lot of people from really reaching out to other people and establishing relationships. I've been hurt before. Don't you think when Jesus picked Judas that he knew everything that was going to come down, but he picked him anyway? Don't you think when he picked Peter, he knew that Peter would deny him? He predicted it, but he made himself vulnerable and loved Peter anyway. C.S. Lewis in his story, The Four Loves, said, quote, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, dark, safe, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all of dangers of love is hell. I'd rather love, wouldn't you? That's the oil that keeps the body of Christ moving. It's the oil that keeps relationships. It's the oil that keeps our love flowing.